Hi, I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. Welcome back to the TechCrunch Podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. This week, we're talking to Zach Whitaker about TechCrunch's new spyware lookup tool and a whistleblower complaint against Twitter alleging massive security issues. And also, Tim DeChant comes on to explain how the Inflation Reduction Act could make EVs more available and more affordable. But before we get into all that, here's what else is going on in tech news this week. Meta is removing the Facebook login requirement for its Oculus VR headsets. It's introducing new Meta accounts instead and Meta Horizon profiles. Oculus headset owners received an email this week instructing them to set up their new Meta account, which they can optionally tie to their Facebook accounts if they want. The Meta Horizon profile will be home to a user's avatar and public-facing persona in Zuckerberg's metaverse with tunable privacy settings. Check out more on the site from Andrew Mendez. Deepfakes have presented a huge ethical quandary since their debut, but a new open-source generator is reigniting the debate. Stability AI's Stable Diffusion has been used by 4chan members to generate nude models of celebrities after leaking early. The official version of Stability AI has built-in tools to prevent such use, but they can also be turned off. This is somewhat new territory since other advanced AI image generators like Dolly 2 are hard-coded to block this kind of use. In the end, image hosting sites and networks may bear the brunt of responsibility for making sure people can't see these images. You can read more on TC from Kyle Wiggers. Oracle is facing a new class action suit related to its privacy practices in the U.S. The complaint takes issue with Oracle having gathered data on roughly 5 billion people globally through its sales and advertising platform. While the complaint and class are far-reaching, the suit faces an uphill battle because of the fractured state of privacy law in the U.S., More about this on TechCrunch from Natasha Lomas. At a joint event this week, T-Mobile and SpaceX announced that starting next year, Starlink satellites will be able to connect directly to T-Mobile phones. There will be a few caveats, including bandwidth limitations, but SpaceX CEO Elon Musk says it should provide enough connectivity for basic communication, including text and voice in hard-to-reach areas. You can check out more about that from Devin Coldaway on TechCrunch. First up, Zach Whitaker is here to talk about a new tool on TechCrunch that allows people to look up if their Android device was compromised by consumer-grade spyware apps. We also got into the massive complaint filed by prolific hacker Mudge alleging Twitter has numerous security vulnerabilities. Hey, Zach, how's it going? Hey, not bad. How are you? Great, great. Good to have you back on the podcast. And Thanks so much for having me yeah, back. It's good to be back. Of course. Exciting news. This actually happened last week, but we wanted to remind people about it in case they missed it the first time around. But we have launched, and I say we only in that I work for TechCrunch because I did claim no, I did not do any of the work involved in this, but Zach did all the work involved in this. Well, Zach and our product team. And it is a lookup tool for people who might potentially be affected by malware. But Zach, do you want to tell people a little bit more about this? Yeah. So this has been a few months actually in the making well earlier this year we had a investigation about a fleet of stalkerware apps these are the kinds of spyware apps that are planted on your phone by someone with access to it you know often these are like child monitoring apps and you know often they're you know planted or under the guise of child monitoring but they can be used to spy on your spouses and partners and things like that and these stalkerware apps these were spilling tons hundreds of thousands of people's data onto the internet we reported that but then some months later we obtained a cache of information from the stalkerware network itself from the internal servers and on that cache of data was a list of every single device android device that was compromised by 
one of these apps under the Truth Spy umbrella of stalkerware apps. And these are apps like Copy9, The Truth Spy, MX Spy, and several others as well. And with this list of compromised devices, you know, we couldn't identify each and every individual whose phone was compromised. So we built a tool instead, very similar to, you might have heard of something like, have I been pwned, where you can type in your email address and your phone number and see if you were breached. But in this case, we built this tool so that anyone who thinks they might have been compromised by one of these stalkerware apps, uh, they can essentially run you know, your own IMEI number or your advertising ID into this tool. It's easily obtainable on your phone and you can check if your phone was compromised by one of these spyware apps. As I said, it's been several months in the making, but, you know, we launched it last week and, you know, the, the feedback's been pretty good so far. And it's a, it's a real credit to the product team. We managed to, to build this tool in a, such a short amount of time and many props to them as well. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I remember, I mean, we worked a lot on this story behind the scenes. You worked a lot on this story behind the scenes. So in February, you know, we posted that original expose and then we had the follow-up in june with the cash right so very very considered effort just on that side but then to go the extra step and do this kind of this is i mean it takes service journalism to a new level i think the term but like how did you decide to do that and what what was the kind of thinking behind like this is something that someone should provide and probably we are the ones that want to be the ones to provide it yeah it's a really good question it, it was actually a decision we made some months ago, once we obtained the data, we poured over it and we looked over it and we tried to analyze, you know, what we could do with the information. We knew that we could see IMEI numbers, which uniquely identifies a phone. And we also saw advertising IDs, which often identifies like a tablet or a, a non-cellular phone. It wasn't enough to really identify people individually. And even if we could personally identify victims who had these spyware apps installed on their phone, we couldn't alert them for fear of also alerting potentially the person spying on them and that could create an unsafe situation. So we spoke with some security experts, some um, privacy experts, um, internet rights experts, and credit to people like Eva Galperin at the EFF. We were able to create essentially a blueprint of what this tool should do. And this idea was that we could essentially allow people to look for themselves and see if their device was was compromised up until about April 2022, which is when we presume this data was dumped from the internal network of the stalkerware network. So it's through this tool we're able to essentially allow anyone to check for themselves. And we also provide a separate guide which explains how to remove the spyware if it's safe to do so. I should say that, you know, the tool itself, the we don't store any IMEI numbers or any advertising IDs that are submitted to the tool. So we've tried to make this essentially as privacy friendly as possible while, you know, also making sure that people can use this to, you know, identify for themselves if their phone was compromised. Right. Yeah. I think that was a, a key ingredient that I wanted to call out. And I'm glad you did when I was reading through kind of the details of it is that, yeah, it's a, information is only used for the lookup and then deleted immediately, right? We don't store it on any server. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right, yeah. The tool itself doesn't really store any data at all because we wouldn't want to store any data that that's submitted. We also want to make this a privacy-friendly tool so that people would want to use it and to check for themselves as well. So this tool is essentially a isolated sort of tool that doesn't save any data and allows people just to look up themselves in a privacy-minded yeah, way. purely a public service, folks. So if you are at all concerned, do do that. And as Zach mentioned also, there's a very handy guide that he put together about you know, again, with the help from individuals who do this for a living about what your risks are around this and how to remove it if it is safe to do so and what the considerations are for 
you know, what would make it perhaps safe or unsafe to do so. And there's additional agencies who are much better at this, including the Coalition Against Stalkerware and the National Network to End Domestic Violence, who can offer added resources about what more steps you can take to ensure your safety if you feel like you've been affected by this or if you find that you've been affected by this stalkerware. And if you want to use the tool for yourself, you can always check out techcrunch.com slash the truth spy dash investigation. And that's where the tool is. And it also has guides there for anyone who wants to check for the spy on their phones uh, themselves. As yeah, well. for sure. And the link will be in the podcast notes too. So you don't have to remember that URL, although I'm glad we came up with a relatively short URL so people can find it easily. Great. Why well, have you here? I need to talk to you about this because as we're recording this, it's currently Tuesday and this morning, a very big story broke about a Twitter executive, former Twitter executive, Peter Mudge Zatko, who was the company's head of security before departing and now releasing a very comprehensive whistleblower document about a lot of the things that he sees as not at all okay that <laughs> Twitter is doing around privacy and security. So do you want to give us a quick rundown of the state as it exists right now with that story? So as the state exists right now, we're recording this on Tuesday, we have no idea how the week is going to look, obviously going in the next few days, but this is already a wild story from this morning. Peter Zanko was the former head of security at Twitter. He's also known by his moniker Mudge. Mudge has been around as long as the internet. He's in the upper echelons of the most respected, lauded, and above all, experienced defenders that we have. He's a cybersecurity goliath, which makes Twitter's response in this case so bizarre. (laughs) Essentially, Twitter has been accused by Zatko of a host of security issues and privacy issues over the past few years. Among many things in his complaint with federal regulators, he claims that thousands of Twitter employees had access to complete copies of Twitter's source code, including, you know, laptops that had security weaknesses, poor security controls. And he also accuses, you know, in some cases, laptops having spyware on them at the request of external organizations, which is some wild claims about some of the many issues within Twitter's security organization, which he essentially oversaw while he was there over the two years that he was hired. Mm-hmm. So it's it's absolutely incredible reading this complaint. Some of the allegations, you know, vary from the kind of the mundane security practices, but these are really important things that all organizations should take into account. And these security issues are widespread and potentially, you know, they could be seriously damaging, you know, if these are exploited by bad actors, according to his complaint. Yeah. So just a little background on, on Mudge, actually, because this is really fascinating stuff. Mudge was hired in 2020, months after Rinky Setti was hired as the chief information security officer. These two executives were just hired after the Twitter administrative hack in July 2020, when hackers took over internal tools and spread cryptocurrency scams across the internet, hijacking big Twitter accounts. Mudge is a pioneering hacker. He has spent years, you know, working at the government He has testified to Senate committees about internet vulnerabilities. He has worked at Google. He has received the high civilian honor from the Secretary of Defense. And yet Twitter claims today in its response that Mudge is a disgruntled employee fired for poor performance and leadership. And Twitter's allegations just don't seem to fly. 
with those who have known Mudge for the past three decades or so, including journalists. Whereas Twitter has been maybe forced to, over the past few years, admit security lapses and data breaches, insider attacks, and even at one point just recently had an agent of the Saudi government working as an employee. And then just recently, Twitter had to pay millions in settlement fees to government agencies for violating their yeah. own promises to keep users' data yeah. safe. So you can probably see why some are highly skeptical of Twitter's rebuttal right now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a strange <laughs> tactic. I mean, overall, their response to this has been uh, ill-considered. I don't know, rushed. There's something going on. Scattered. Yes, yeah, scattered yeah. for sure. I mean, the entirety of the statement, I want to read it. I mean, sure, let's give Twitter their time, but also it's a very bad statement. So it's worth reading in full, right? So Mr. Zaka was fired from his senior executive role at Twitter in January 2022 for ineffective leadership and poor performance, which is what Zach just referenced. What we've seen so far is a false narrative about Twitter and our privacy and data security practices that is riddled with inconsistencies and inaccuracies and lacks important context. Let's remain on this for a minute. This is like one of those things that I used to work in PR, and when you did, you would craft these things that are like, well, what can we actually get away with kind of like disagreeing with without getting into the meat? And false narrative that lacks important context are the pretty, that's like bog standard. It's like, oh, okay, well, the parts are there, but the story, and they do say inconsistencies and inaccuracies, again, very soft kind of words to use there. It's not a denial. It's a criticism of the artfulness of the document basically right and then yeah they're they're critiquing and attacking his character rather than the issues at hand which they you know twitter as an organization still has not rebutted or refuted any of the allegations that much has, has no. made so far no and so this continues the, the very the last couple sentences so mr zakko's allegations and opportunistic timing appear designed to capture attention and inflict harm on twitter its customers and its shareholders and then the last is i'm not going to read the last because it's absurd it's worthless it's just this standard like we're good at stuff we take security yeah. seriously, yeah. <laughs> but it's also worth noting that I recall CNN, if I recall correctly, said that this complaint was essentially initiated long before any recent dealings with Elon Musk regarding Twitter. Right. So again, that doesn't add up to the timeline it, either. It, it makes absolutely no sense to me to say like that he has anything to gain from this. I mean, I guess the very vague insinuation is that perhaps he's somehow going to... Like maybe Musk is going to go pay him a billion dollars for saying this bad stuff or whatever, like to flummox the deal. It's one of the shadiest and most poorly crafted responses to something I've seen, right? Like there's a lot of other ways. So far, the week is young. <laughs> the week is young. That's right. Yeah. I mean, just very confusing on very many fronts. Is there anything else you want to share about this? I mean, like you said, it's a kind of like moving target. So we don't want to go into too much detail until more stuff emerges. But do you want to? Cap it here. No, we'll have to see what happens. I mean, already we've got lawmakers, senators calling on the FTC to investigate, which it probably will in its sweet time. <laughs> but we'll have to wait and see how this one plays out because right now, I mean, Twitter is is walking into a period of extreme volatility yeah. and it's not helping itself with the response that it gave, you know, today so far. So we'll have to wait and see. But this is not something that's going to go away anytime soon, I suspect. No, definitely not. And Twitter comms is probably sad about that, but it's not going anywhere. So thanks so much, Zach. Really appreciate you coming on to talk about both these things. And again, the links for our uh, Stalkerware lookup tool is available in the episode notes for the show. Thanks, Zach. Thanks so much. Cheers. Next, Tim DeChant talks with me about the future of manufacturing electric vehicles in the U.S. Hey, Tim, how's it going? Good, Daryl. How are you doing? 
Great. Thanks for joining us here on the TC pod. Great to have you and great to be talking to you about a topic that's near and dear to your heart, I'm sure, but probably to a lot of folks these days. So we're talking about green tech, but we're talking about one very specific part of it, which is battery technology and the automotive industry and legislation thereabouts. So do you want to give us a breakdown of your story that you wrote for TC Plus? Yeah, that's right. So The Inflation Reduction Act that was recently signed actually contains a lot of climate tech components to it. And one of them is the revamped electric vehicle credit. Previously, if you went out to buy an electric vehicle that had a battery size, I think greater than 14 kilowatt hours, might be 16 kilowatt hours, doesn't matter because it's gone now. With that, if the car company had made and sold fewer than 200,000 qualifying vehicles, you could take home that $7,500 credit. No matter your income, no matter how much the vehicle costs, that kind of stuff. Now they've changed it so there are means testing on it. You can qualify if you make, I think, less than $150,000 a year as a single filer. If you are you know, a two-earner household, you can make up to $300,000 a year. They also capped the MSRP for the vehicles. So sedans, $55,000. SUVs and trucks, $80,000. Right. So a couple goals there that seems like they want to incentivize low-cost electric vehicles for the population that typically wouldn't be going out and buying Tesla Model S's, for instance. Exactly, exactly. We've seen a lot of automakers chase that high end because that's where the margins are. And Tesla has found pretty good success in kind of starting high and then slowly working down the value chain. But you're starting to see, you know, with inflation and just the pricing power that these companies have, it's going up and up. So Tesla's raised prices a number of times. Other automakers have followed suit and those more affordable EVs are failing to materialize. So this, I think, is kind of a prod to get them moving in that direction. Now, of course, a $75,000 SUV is not many people's idea of affordable, um, but (laughs) at least it's not $150,000, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but to your point there, like the SKUs, which is the pricing bands going up, you're right, like existing bands, prices are grazing across the board as supply chain constraints hit and, you know, other things with that kind of problem that's going on globally. But then also you see manufacturers dropping their lower cost SKUs and trims. Rivian just did, I think, this past week as we're recording this. So it's a problem from both sides and they got to figure out some way to get them to, because everybody's been talking about it for years, right? The automakers have been talking about it for years, like we're going to make a $35,000 EV with reasonable range and everybody's going to buy it. And then it comes out and it's like, hey, it's $35,000 if you look at it sideways and you apply this credit and the state credit and whatever else. And then like a year later, it's like, that one's gone entirely. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I think right now, probably the only one that fits that description would be the Chevy Bolt. Right. Yeah. Which has been there for a long time. Now, if you get in one and drive it around, I don't think anybody would think it's necessarily a $35,000 vehicle. Right. I had a blast driving one personally. Yeah, but, they're a lot of fun. They're a lot yeah. of fun. But the fit and finish isn't what you would expect at that right. price point. So they're right. still working out some of the kinks. And obviously, they put a lot of that time and effort and money into the battery. And it's possible that we'll see some things change as the supply chain kinks, especially with the chip shortage, work themselves out. That's been one of the biggest limitations this last year or so. But there's going to be a battery crunch then too. And that's someplace that the new tax credit is hoping to address. 
But it's going to take several years before that works itself out. Yeah. So can you give us a bit more detail on this? Because this was very interesting to me reading your article about the sourcing. It's clear they're also trying to strong arm some onshoring, right? Yes. Yeah. This seems to be Manchin's ultimatum. He apparently went to the automakers and said, you know, look, here's the deal. You build this industry here, you'll get your $7,500 credit, and that will eliminate all of the volume caps, right? So the 200000 vehicle cap will be gone. And I think it was a bit of a game of chicken, and it turns out Joe Manchin won. Um, right. So what he's saying is they not only have to build the vehicles within North America, which is one of the requirements, they also have to build major components of the batteries. So significant percentages of the value of the battery have to be made in the U.S. or be sourced from, I think that one's just the U.S. or North America. And then you also have to... Yeah, NAFTA. I don't even know if it's called NAFTA. USMCA, <laughs> I think now. Yeah. We're going to yeah, be calling yeah. it NAFTA for the next five years, regardless. <laughs> Whatever that replacement is. Yeah. 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 So the value of the components have to be assembled in North America on the battery side. And then the minerals that go into it have to either be from the U.S. or a country with which we have a free trade agreement. Or they can be recycled in the U.S., but that's going to be a very small part probably for the next 10 years. Yeah, and that is interesting. I mean, you brought up a couple of the companies we've talked about and with before, even on this podcast. Not this podcast, sorry, our sister podcast found, but EnthCycle, for instance, we've spoken to them. And you've also got J.B. Straubel's uh, Redwood Material, another big player in this. But the volume's there are not enough where it's like, well, we don't need China you know, mine minerals anymore because we've got all this, right? We're not anywhere near there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we're not even close there. And I think the challenge is that the batteries are lasting a lot longer than anybody expected. Mm. You know, they're extending 10, 12 years of usable life in EVs. And then a lot of people expect them to have second lives, either supporting the grid or maybe dropped in somebody's home uh, as a solar backup battery. So it will be a big thing once a lot of these start coming off the market and being ready for recycling. But for now, it's everyone I've, a lot of people I've spoken with seem to think it's going to be another 10 years or so before that becomes a major factor in terms of pricing and supplies for some of these minerals. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because it's one of those rare occasions where people really undershot the usable life of these in like both primary and secondary lives where I remember early on people were talking a lot about like, oh, well, you know, the battery will be in your Tesla or your Bolt or whatever. And then like within five years, it's going somewhere else and then it's probably going to end up way downstream, right? In different international markets doing various jobs. But by around however long, like it'll come back in. The minerals will come back in. You'll reclaim them. But it's turning out like, no, they'll be in the cars for a lot longer than people think. And is that down to like, it's just they're able to retain charge longer or is it down to people being okay with like batteries with diminished charge over time? Or is that sort of unclear yet. I think it's mostly come down to the fact that they're making the batteries better and managing them better. Hmm. I think some of the early problems came down to the Nissan Leaf, which was air-cooled, essentially didn't have, it had passive management of the battery temperature. That coupled with the specific chemistry it used basically caused the lifespan to shrink dramatically, especially in really hot climates. Yeah, yeah. So I think that might have... That sort of set the wrong benchmarks. Yeah, it set people. the wrong benchmarks, and I think it spooked people in the industry. And so a lot of people moved over to active battery temperature, you know, thermal management, basically running an air conditioning loop to cool or heat the batteries appropriately. And that, I think, helped extend it. And then you also see automakers just simply getting better at their battery management software. So a lot of times you might hear about, oh, we've extended the range 10 miles or 20 miles via an over-the-air update. 
And a lot of that comes down to the fact that they feel more comfortable using a larger portion of the battery that they have installed. So typically, huh. automakers will ship a battery that's, say, 100 kilowatt hours, and they'll only let you access 90 of that. Right. right the right. idea being that there's this buffer so that if cells decrease in capacity, they can just kind of shift over and use some of that. So that by the time you reach the end of your warranty, maybe you're using all of the cells in the, in the battery, but you're still above whatever threshold they've set, 80 70% worth of gotcha. usable capacity. So they were just really conservative with those. And then gradually over time, they're like, well, it looks like we can actually unlock a little bit more of that and give that directly to the consumer. Yeah, basically. And you're getting to the point now where you're seeing maybe like five to 7% held in reserve. Whereas yeah. before, I think they were a little bit more conservative. Oh, great. Okay. So that was a bit of a, a sidetrack. I'm to blame for that, but I th I've learned a lot and I think our listeners do too. But I want to go back to kind of this materials supply thing. And is it do you think it's even possible? I guess Mansion One in this instance, but given availability of natural resources, like is this something that is feasible for these automakers to be able to do in the timeframes stated? In the timeframes stated, the next few years, I think, are going to be really challenging. Right now, they're saying for the critical minerals, so things like lithium, nickel, cobalt, they need to be at least 40% mined in the U.S. or a free trade agreement. So for something like lithium, that's not as much of an issue because we can go to Chile, which with which we have a free trade agreement and source from there. But for something like cobalt, that's really difficult. Mm. Most of the world's cobalt occurs in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Right. Many of the mines there are controlled by Chinese firms. And even if those mines aren't necessarily controlled by Chinese firms, 79% of the world's cobalt processing capacity is in China. Yeah. And that's where things really get to be tricky because you might be able to get an offtake agreement, but then you don't have anywhere to process it. And yeah. so we either need to find additional sources or lock up supplies in the DRC, but more critically, we need to build the processing plants. And yeah. that I think is going to be tricky to do within the US, Canada. Processing is a dirty business, and uh, right. there's going to be a lot of people who don't want that in their backyards. Yeah, for sure. And I've also heard, I don't know if it was cobalt specifically, and I think this may have been a conversation with Encycle, but that there there is actually a lot of processing capacity in Canada specifically for some of these minerals, but it's still much, much cheaper to put it on a barge, ship it to China, have it processed, and then ship it back. Exactly. Yeah, that's probably nickel. Canada has a lot of nickel supplies. But yeah, the costs are so much lower in China that it is cheaper to do it that way. This might, of course, tip the balance, right. which yeah. I think is what they're interested in doing. Because by 2027, 80% of the critical minerals have to come from the U.S. or a free trade agreement country. Yeah, yeah. But that other point you bring up is a big one. And I wonder how that's going to play out. I mean, that'll be the one that we'll see bubble up much more clearly because when they're looking to build these facilities, be it mining or processing, in people's backyards, there's going to be a lot of protest and yes. action against yeah. it. Right? Yeah. And part of me wonders if a lot of this is unfortunately going to be shunted to Mexico as a result. Right. You know, I'm not very, I'm not read up on their environmental regulations, but economics has a way of unfortunately shifting a lot of these burdens to countries with lower GDPs. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of in part why a lot of these free trade agreements exist, right? Unfortunately. Yeah. So the other question I would have is then, is there a way to sidestep that? Are there technologies on the horizon that might eliminate or reduce some of the reliance on some of these more hard-to-come-by rare metals? There are, and a lot of automakers and battery companies are exploring high-nickel content batteries right now. That gets a little tricky because cobalt 
provide stability to the battery, whereas nickel can make things a little more volatile. Mm. But that would allow them to shift some of the burden off sourcing from China and the DRC for cobalt, which kind of has the monopoly there, to countries like Canada, Indonesia, where there's a little bit more availability of nickel. But a little bit farther out, there are some more promising ones. Well, actually, I should say near term, there's also the switch to lithium iron phosphate, which is a cheaper battery type. It's heavier and maybe a little bit less energy dense. But for cheaper models, it's a perfect fit. You already see Tesla moving some of their cheaper ones to the LFP chemistry. A little bit farther down the line, one company to keep an eye on is called Our Next Energy. They're a startup out of Michigan. They're looking to pair a LFP, what they call traction battery. So good for about 150 miles, and it drives the main battery itself. And then they're going to pair it with a more exotic chemistry that they call a range extender. And that range extender battery will then charge the traction battery. So it's kind of like what you saw in like the Chevy Volt or the old Mm -hmm. BMW i3s with the range extenders. But instead of a fossil fuel range extender, you have an exotic battery. Right now, they're playing around with, you know, high nickel content batteries and cobalt batteries and stuff like that. But they're researching uh, manganese chemistry. And the great Mm -hmm. part about that is manganese is cheap widely available. It's not nearly as concentrated like cobalt or nickel. The downside, the reason why nobody's used it so far is that they tend to fail after, say, two, three hundred cycles. Oh, okay. And in an automotive battery, that's almost an order of magnitude less than you need. Right, right. But people don't drive more than 150 miles a day all that often. Yeah. So the bet here is you spend most of your time driving around on this cheap, durable LFP battery, and the handful, maybe even a dozen times a year that you need this high capacity battery for long distances, that's when you can dip into it. Together, they should last the duration of the vehicle. Great. Yeah, I had not heard that much about this, but it sounds like the hybrid successors, right? The sort of like next generation post-ICE hybrids could be very interesting. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a clever approach to work around some of the issues that we're starting to see with the supply chain. And it would also, it happens to dovetail, I think, kind of nicely with the tax credits that you're seeing coming on. Yeah. All right. Well, here's hoping that those push a little more innovation in those areas. I'm sure they will. But thanks very much, Tim. Yeah, thanks, Daryl. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And remember to check out all the stories we talked about in this episode on TechCrunch.com. Be sure to use our TC Plus promo code TCPodcast, all one word, to get 20% off on both annual and two-year terms. Also, TechCrunch Disrupt is coming up on October 18th through the 20th, live in San Francisco with guests including Serena Williams, Chris Dixon, and more. Tickets are available now. Be sure to check out all the other TC podcasts, including Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. See you next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. 